0: Chapter 17. Of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet by Harold Goodwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 17. The Archer and the Eagle. Trudeau held tight to the launcher, but the rocket racks opened and spilled attack rockets into space. They flew in a dozen different directions. Trudeau gave vent to his feelings in colorful French. Koa and Santos laughed so hard they had trouble collecting the scattered equipment. Rip, slowed by his crash with Trudeau, got his feet under him again. The asteroid had turned into the sun before they collected everything but Rip's stylus and five attack rockets. The space pencil was the only thing that could write on the computing board. It had to be found. "'Next time around!' Rip called to the others and led the way full speed ahead until they regained the safety of Shadow. Rip suspected the stylus was somewhere above the rock and probably wouldn't return to the surface for some minutes. While he was wondering what to do, there was a chorus of yells. A rocket sped between the Planeteers and shot off into space. "'Our own rockets are after us,' Trudeau gasped. There hadn't been time to collect them all after Rip's unwilling attack on the Frenchmen scattered them. Now the sun was setting them off. Another flashed past, fortunately, over their heads. The sun's heat was causing them to fire unevenly. Rip hoped they would all go off soon and get it over with. Three more to go!' Koa called. "'Watch out!' Only two went, and they were far enough away to offer no danger. Santos had been fishing around in the instrument case. He triumphantly produced another stylus. "'It was under the sextant,' he explained. "'I thought there was another one around somewhere.' "'If we get through this, I'll propose you for ten more stripes,' Rip vowed. "'We'll make you the highest-ranking sergeant that ever made a private's life miserable.' Working slowly, but more safely, Rip figured that slightly more than two and a half tubes would do the trick now to fire them. That meant finding a thorium crystal properly placed and big enough. There were plenty of crystals, so that was no problem. The next step was for Kemp to cut holes with his torch, so that the thrust of the rocket fuel would be counter to the direction in which the asteroid was spinning. Rip explained to all hands what had to be done. The burden would fall on Kemp, who would need a helper. Rip took that job himself. He took one oxygen tank from Kemp, Coa took the other, leaving the torchman with only his torch. Then Rip took a container of chemical fuel from Bradshaw. Working while running, he lashed the two containers together with his safety line. Then he improvised a rope sling so they could hang on his back. He wanted his hands free. Kemp, meanwhile, assembled his torch and put the proper cutting nozzle in place. When he was ready, he moved to Rip's side and connected the hoses of the torch to the tanks the lieutenant carried. Kemp had the torch mechanism strapped to his own back. It was essentially a high-pressure pump that drew oxygen and fuel from the tanks and forced them through the nozzle under terrific pressure. When he had finished, he pressed the trigger that started the cutting torch going. The fuel ignited about a half-inch in front of the nozzle. The nozzle had two holes in it, one for oxygen and the other for fuel. The holes were placed and angled to keep the flame always a half-inch away otherwise the nozzle itself would melt. How do we work this? Kemp asked. We'll get ahead of the others, Rip explained. Keep up speed until we're running at the forward sun-line. Then, when the crystal we want comes around into the shadow, we can stop running and work until it spins into the sunshine again. Got it, Kemp agreed. Rip estimated the axis on which the asteroid was spinning and selected a crystal in the right position. He had to be careful, otherwise their counterblast might do nothing more than start the gray planet wobbling. He and Kemp ran ahead of the others. The Planeteers and their prisoners were running at a speed that kept them right in the middle of the dark area. It was like running on a treadmill. The Planeteers were making good speed, but were actually staying in the same place relative to the sun's position, keeping the turning asteroid between them and the sun. Rip and Kemp ran forward until they were right at the sunline. Then they slowed down, holding position and waiting for the crystal they had chosen to reach them. As it came across the sunline into darkness, they stopped running and rode the crystal through the shadow until it reached the sun again. Then the two planeteers ran back across the dark zone to meet the crystal as it came around again. There was only a few minutes working time each revolution. Kemp worked fast, and the first hole deepened. Rip helped as best he could by pushing away the chunks of thorium that Kemp cut free, but it was essentially a one-man job. As Kemp neared the bottom of the first hole, Rip reviewed his plan and realized he had overlooked something. These weren't nuclear bombs. They were simple tubes of chemical fuel. The tubes wouldn't destroy the hole Kemp was cutting. He reached a quick decision and called Koa to join them. Koa appeared as Kemp pulled his torch from the hole and started running again to avoid the sun. Rip and Koa ran right along with him, crossing the dark zone to meet the crystal as it came around again. "'There's no reason to drill three holes,' Rip explained as they ran. "'We'll use one hole for all three charges. They don't have to be fired all at once.' "'How do we fire them?' Koa asked. "'Electrically.' WHO HAS THE EXPLODERS ON THE HAND DYNAMO? Doust HAS THE EXPLODERS. ONE OF THE CONNIES IS CARRYING THE DYNAMO." Speaking of the Connies, Rip hadn't seen the Consop's cruiser recently. He looked up, searching for its exhaust, and finally found it, a faint line some distance away. The Connie commander was stalemated for the time being. He couldn't land his cruiser on a spinning asteroid, and he had no more boats. Rip thought he probably was just waiting around for any opportunity that might present itself. The Federation cruiser should be arriving. He studied his chronometer. No, the nearest one, the Sagittarius from Mercury, wasn't due for another ten minutes or so. He turned up his helmet communicator and ordered all hands to watch for the exhaust of a nuclear drive cruiser, then turned it down again and gave Koa instructions. "'Have Trudeau turn his load over to a Connie and collect the exploders and the dynamo. We'll need wire, too. Who has that?' "'Another Connie.' "'Get a reel. Cut off a few hundred feet and connect the dynamo to one end and an exploder to the other.' The crystal came around again, and Kemp got to work. Rip stood by, again reviewing all steps. They couldn't afford to make a mistake. He had no margin of error." Kemp finished the hole in a few seconds before the crystal turned into the sunlight again. Rip told him to keep the torch going. There might be some last-minute cutting to do. Then the lieutenant hurried off at an angle to where Domenico was plodding along with the fuel tubes. Koa had turned the tube he carried over to Akani. Rip got it and told Domenico to follow him. Then he angled back across the asteroid to where Kemp was holding position. The asteroid turned twice before Koa arrived. He had a coil of wire slung over his arm, and he carried the dynamo in one hand, and an exploder in the other, the two connected by the wire. Rip took the exploder. "'Uncoil the wire,' he directed. "'Go to its full length at right angles to the hole. We have to time this exactly right. When the crystal comes around again, I'll shove the tubes into the hole, then scurry for cover. When I'm clear, I'll yell and you pump the dynamo. Domenico and Kemp stay with Koa. Make sure no one is in the way of the blast." Koa unreeled the wire, moving away from Rip. The lieutenant pushed the exploder into one end of the fuel tube and crimped it tightly with his gloved hand. Koa and the others were as far away as they could get now, the wire stretching between them and Rip. Kemp had made sure no one was running near the line of blast. Rip watched for the crystal. It would be coming around any second now. He held the tube with the exploder projecting behind him, ready for the hole to appear. Koa's voice echoed in his helmet. All set, Lieutenant. So am I, Rip answered. Stand by. The crystal appeared across the sunline and moved toward him. He met it, slowed his speed, and put the end of the tube into the hole and shoved. Kemp had allowed enough clearance. The tube slid into place. Rip turned and angled off as fast as he could glide. When he was far enough away from the blast line, he called, FIRE! Coas squeezed the dynamo handle. The machine whined and current shot through the wire. A column of orange fire spurted from the crystal. Rip watched the stars instead of the exhaust. He kept running as it burned soundlessly. In air the noise would have deafened him. In airless space there was nothing to carry the sound. The apparent motion of the stars was definitely slowing. The spinning wouldn't cease entirely, but it would slow down enough to give them more time to work. The tube reached Brench loose and Rip called orders. "'Same process. Get ready to repeat. Dominico, bring one of your tubes.' While KoA was connecting another exploder to the wire, Rip took a tube from Domenico. "'Take your space-knife and saw through the tube you have left. We'll need about three-fifths of it. Keep both pieces.' Domenico pulled his knife, pressed the release, and the gas capsule shot the blade out. He got to work. Koa called that he was ready. Rip took the wired exploder from him and thrust it into the tube Domenico had given him. As the crystal came around again, the process was repeated. The hole was undamaged. There was more time to get clear because of the asteroid's slower speed. The second tube slowed the rock even more, so that they had to wait long minutes while the crystal came around again. Rip did some estimating. He wanted to be sure the next charge would do nothing more than slow the asteroid to a stop. If the charge were too heavy, it would reverse the spin. He didn't want to make a career of running on the asteroid. He was tired, and he knew his men were getting weary, too. He could see it in their strides, they were less sure of foot. He decided it would be best to use a little less fuel rather than a little more. If the asteroid failed to stop its spin completely, They could always set off a small charge or two. Hold it," he ordered. We'll use the small end of Domenico's tube and save the big one. The fuel was a solid mass, so cutting the tube in two sections caused no difficulty. Rip pushed the exploder into the small section, seated it in the hole, and hurried to cover. As he watched the fuel burn, he wondered why the last nuclear charge had started the spin. He had made a mistake somewhere. The earlier blasts had been set so they wouldn't cause a spin. He made a mental note to look at the place where the charge had exploded when things were more quiet. The rocket fuel slowed the asteroid down to a point where it was barely turning, and Rip was glad he had been cautious. The heavier charge would have reversed it a little. He directed the placing of a very small charge, and was moving away from it so Koa could set it off, when Santos suddenly yelled, "'Sir, the Connie is coming!' "'Rip called. Fire the charge, Koa!' then looked up. The konsop's cruiser was moving slowly toward them. The Kani Kani had been waiting for something to happen on the asteroid, Rip guessed. When the spinning slowed and stopped, the Connie probably had decided that now was the time for a final try. "'Where is the communicator?' Rip asked Koa. "'One of the Connie's has it. Get it. I'll notify Terra Base of what happened.' Koa found the Connie with the communicator, tested it to be sure the prisoner hadn't sabotaged it, and brought it to Rip. "'This is Foster to Terra Base. Over.' "'Come in, Foster.' Rip explained briefly what had happened, and asked, "'How is our orbit? I haven't had time to take sightings.' "'You're free of the sun,' Terra Base answered. "'Your orbit will have to be corrected sometime within the next few hours.' The last blast pushed you off course. That's a small matter, Rip stated. Unless we can think of something fast, this will be a Connie asteroid by then. The Consops cruiser is moving in on us. He's careful because he isn't sure of the situation. But even at his present speed, he'll be here in ten minutes. Stand by. Terra Base was silent for a few moments, then the voice replied I think we have an answer for you, Foster. "'Tear a base off. Go ahead, MacFife. A Scottish burr thick enough to saw boards came out of the communicator. "'Foster, this is MacFife, commander of the Aquila. You can't see me on account of I'm on your sunny side. But, lad, I'm closer to you than the Connie.' "'We did it this way to keep the asteroid between us and him. Also, lad, if you take a look up at Gemini, you'll see something you like. Look at Alhina in the twins' feet.' Then, lad, if you'll be patient a while, you'll have a grandstand seat for a real big show." Rip tilted his bubble back and stared upward at the constellation of the twins. He said softly, "'By Gemini!' For there, a half degree south of the star Elhina, was the clean line of a nuclear cruiser's exhaust. The Sagittarius out of Mercury had arrived. He cut the communicator off for a moment and spoke exultantly to his men. Stand easy, you hairy planeteers. Forget the Connie. He doesn't know it, but he's caught. He's caught between the archer and the eagle. End of chapter 17